and welcome to episode 37 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And today we'll be taking a look at John Carroll Lynch's directorial debut, Lucky, starring Harry Dean Stanton. We'll open the Cultural Capital film diary and share our picks from movie. But first, Dee Reese's Mudbound. And I think of the farm, I think of mud, and crusted knees and hair. Our family's in trouble. You understand that? Do you? What's the worst thing you ever did? You betray your own blood. You can't even see your own wife is miserable. Silence. Oppression. Fear. It would take an extraordinary man to beat all that. Amen. After screening to high acclaim at Sundance in January, where Netflix bought the film for an impressive $12.5 million, Dee Reese's Mudbound finally became available to see in Australia on November 17th, via streaming only. Taking place across the decade of the 1940s, this tale follows two families, the white McCallans and the black Jacksons, both struggling in poverty but afflicted by very different problems. Mudbound truly earns the description of an epic, dealing with class, race, war and domestic problems in rural Mississippi with a stinging honesty. This could be a story from a William Faulkner perhaps or a Walker Evans of our time. Indeed, it may be called an American tragedy and deserve the title more than Theodore Dreiser. Andy, do you agree, is this an American tragedy? Yeah, it is. It's a really, really interesting film. I thought it reminded me quite a bit of films from the 80s that would look at these sorts of big epic stories, but they look at them in a very different way, of course, to Dee Reese. It was a really good scene early on where there's a party. There's a very like affluent white people dressed very nicely. It begins the scene of this party with the the black waiters in the, in the room off to the side, follows them into this party. It's beautiful, it's opulent. Cuts back to the black musicians, back to the black waiters. Suddenly it feels like the whole scene, which would have been from an 80s film or from some sort of classic... Um, looking at you know life on a plantation or something, suddenly mm. it feels like we've zoomed out. We're getting more people, getting more society in here. We're getting more interesting stories being told. I thought the acting was uniformly excellent. I thought it was so polished. It was really, really lush to look at. There was a lot of mud and poverty, but it didn't look in a sort of gritty, gritty way. It was like really beautifully cinematically put together. And that's what I thought was so strange about this was because of the, of the Netflix release. This is a film that should be seen on a bigger screen, I think, than a lot of people are going to see it on. Yeah, I really, really agree with you. I was lucky enough to see this at Sundance on a big screen, so I have seen it twice now. And I've been thinking of this ever since I saw it in January. But when I found out that it wasn't getting a cinema release in Australia, I was aghast. Mm, It's had some cinema release in America and London and perhaps other parts of the world as well. But, yeah, here it seems to just be on Netflix. And I think that's a real shame because there's a lot – that you're missing out on, I think, when you don't get that immersive experience because it's so, I mean, it's called Mudbound and it's a strange title for the film, I think, and it relates obviously to, you know, the, I guess, tactile nature of these people's lives and, and where they're actually living. So it's about the location rather than anything else. So if you don't kind of get that full experience in watching it, or, and listening to it, then that seems to be a shame. But having said that, I do think that you can get kind of get the sense of it, even on a small screen. Yeah, I mean, it's a really ambitious film. I mean, it was two hours, 15. There's a, around four, possibly more people doing voiceovers at different points, which gave me the feeling of almost listening to an audiobook at times because there were a lot of really, really key phrases that turn up in voiceover or lots of 
yeah, parts of exploration. Yeah. That was one of the most striking things to me about the film first seeing it. I mean, it's really, it's a really, really interesting decision because the voiceovers begin immediately before you know who the characters are. So you don't really understand who's talking for like the first portion of the film. You don't understand whose voiceover it is necessarily. You're not familiar with their voices or even their plights enough to really understand. But what I found really interesting thinking about it, and I just sort of noticed this last night, was that it begins with the voiceovers of two of the white characters, Jamie and Laura. Jamie played by Beautiful man, what's his? Garrett Headland. Garrett Headland, that's yes. it. And Laura played by Kerry Mulligan. And I feel like by beginning with the voiceovers of two of the white people in the film, it kind of entwines the dispossession of the black characters in society into this storytelling format, which is a really, really interesting choice for DVs to make because this is a story about. Uh, racial inequality, about racial dispossession dispossession of certain races and it's really, really heartbreaking. And to do that is just very clever. It was a very clever thing, I thought. Yeah, because we're so used to those stories being told from a white perspective Mm. and when they're not, it's suddenly revolutionary and throw a whole bunch of Oscars at 12 Years a Slave. And so this was really interesting because I thought, oh, you know, I'm sort of conditioned to think, oh, if it's voiceover, it's a bit lazy and, you know, this is something you should be able to tell visually and you shouldn't have to rely to this you know, bypassing visual means altogether to tell your story. But I think in this case it actually is used in a narratively really interesting way because, as you were saying, we begin with these two white voiceovers. Then we get to Mary J. Blige coming in. who plays Florence Jackson, the mother of the, one of the main protagonists. And then her husband turns up in voiceover as well later on, um, Rob Morgan, who plays Hap Jackson. And then the story shifts focus again away to these two young men who are both go off to the Second World War and have very different experiences of war, but then quite similar in ways that become interesting later on. Uh, so I thought the star power alone would have made this find a home in a major you know, distribution place like you know Sony or Universal or something like that. I know, and I don't know why. I mean, maybe it was a Netflix type of thing, although I, it's hard to say given that there is some big screen release going on uh, overseas. Uh, It is hard to understand why, but there is star power in here and, yeah, terrific performances, as you say. I mean, I kind of came out of Sundance hoping that Mary J. Blige was going to get an award nomination or, you know, win an award at Sundance or whether that's going to follow up with some kind of further recognition. I mean, she didn't really – she didn't get one. She's gotten a Breakthrough Actress Award at the Hollywood Film Film (laughs) – Oh, how funny. (laughs) Breakthrough Mary J. Blige, honestly. Um, But, no, it does. It feels like, you know, really exciting to see her on screen. Yeah, I just love this film so much and I feel like when I was thinking about it, I just didn't quite know how to grapple with this – story and the way it was told just yet and I feel like I'm more equipped to now but at the time I was just thinking like it's really difficult to say what is the more significant grief expressed in this film Mm. Um, there's just so much it's horrific racism um, unrecognized post-war trauma of the two men who return and it's just even it's both families don't recognize what these men have been through and mm. that's really really awful yeah well um, nobody knew no one knew but you can see these very specific moments where neither father is understanding um and even the mother what the, the sons have been through which is horrific and then you've got 
this more underspoken, I think, because of the way that Laura's character is portrayed. And I think Kerry Mulligan gives a great performance as well, um, perhaps one that needs to be spoken about more mm. in discussions of the film. Well, we're so used um, to her delivering just A-grade every time. Yeah, but, like, it's a emotional and oppressive cruelty of the husband towards the wife is just extreme in this film. So it's, it's like, what is the worst thing that's going on in this mm. film? And, I mean, I think, obviously because we do get the Ku Klux Klan. I think obviously you have to say that it's this depiction of racial inequality that is that is the most horrific thing, but I don't think that DOE's pulls back from, from anything. No, well in the interview she's spoken about using mud as a metaphor and in the opening scene we have the two brothers, um, Jason Clark, who plays uh, Henry McAllen and his brother Garrett Hedlund's Jamie, um, digging a grave for their father and then you know, they ask for help from a passing Hap who's mm-hmm. got his family in a wagon. And straight away, the, the metaphor is already kind of sitting there. So I think that I think the racial thing underpins everything, and even in their ex- particular experiences of PTSD, if or shell shock, or whatever they may have mm. called it back then, even that's you know socially treated incredibly differently. And so there's a there's a lot of little scenes I think that really stand out where that's, but it's really handled really nicely. But it's not in a way we make it sound quite oppressive the film, but it's not. It's quite beautiful to look at. There is some humour. There are some fantastic you know, performances that are definitely worth seeing. There were a couple of scenes that really, really stood out to me. There was one involving a church with no roof and a gospel song mm-hmm. in which um, footage of some of the sons that are out in World War II in Europe is going to cut with people's lives on the farm and that's done to really powerful effect um, when we see these two instances occur. And there's another one involving homecomings. There's two homecomings that had to take place that both made me choke up quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> really beautifully handled. A lot of lighting in, so in the shots in the cabins was really beautiful, really low candlelight in some and then in other scenes we get really – she's yeah. really, really across the medium. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was thinking particularly of some recent films filmed on digital that I've seen that just don't handle darkness very well and this film absolutely does. There's a scene towards the end where Roncel is in a cornfield uh, – a cotton field, sorry, that's been rained out and it's dark and it's pouring with rain – and so he's in the foreground, but in the background you can see – you can actually see the rain. You can see the individual drops falling and it's just brilliant because it's kind of a little bit just very softly lit and it's, but it's so clear mm. and so evocative of perhaps – the time and the place of being there and that's just brilliant. The cinematography was by Rachel Morrison and editing by Marco Kamitsuna, both women. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, you know, appreciate as well that there is a female crew team, yeah. you know, in some of mm. the key roles, which is great. And the music by Tamar Kali, who has worked with DBs before. They're achieving some really wonderful things in this epic portrait of a pastime that deals with war and a lot of these, um, you know, really, really incredible and so and things that are so important. Yeah, most of the discussion about this seems to be about what's happening behind the camera, like about how what a revolutionary film this is in so many different ways. Yeah, and how whether it may be the first Netflix you know, production to be able to break into the Academy, who see it as very much still a very televisual yeah mode. Although listening to Dee Reese, it's such a lot a struggle for her to have actually got this out and even while you were at Sundance within a few hundred metres of where you were there were all these deals playing out and everything Mm. was falling through and it wasn't until the very last day of Sundance where everybody had walked away we should be thinking about some lowball offers and then finally Netflix offered just half a million more than the film budget okay and they were like yeah we'll we'll work with you again (laughs) already yeah so yeah, having that sort of support, I mean, it seems like the standard film industry kind of failed her. Yeah. Because it would have had no outlet, even though it got apparently an amazing reception and ovations at Sundance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really incredible. It was a film that, you know, stuck out 
uh, has stuck out for me all year as one of the best that I've seen, which I said to you when yeah. we talked about doing this. It's just one thing more that I think um, I want to touch on is that, I mean, as you were saying, this sounds like a quite an impressive film, which it isn't. And even though it's really horrific and some really awful things happen, I love that this film... You know, we won't give it away if you haven't seen it, but it ends with a tragedy. Mm. But it's not a tragic ending. Yeah. There is this, and it almost seems dreamlike and impossible, although I think it, we can take it at face value and say that, yes, this is, this is really happening. While for most of the film, it, you know, it depicts the everyday struggle of this black family in the South, how hard their lives are and how hard everyone's life is out there. It's this epic about how horrific life can be, but it doesn't end in that way, so it's not a slog. You know, mm. we don't have to slog through mud for the whole yeah. way of the film. It's it's really uplifting. And I think that's what makes it stand out. Mm. Well, this is the first film we've ever reviewed here that isn't showing in cinemas at the moment. Is it? Well, no, it's not. I think I probably will. If it does get nominations in Academy Awards, I think it will yeah. probably get a cinematic release. But at the moment, Yeah, to maybe this? it would get a small – if, you know, in the lead-up to this ceremony, it would get a small release here yeah. in Australia, we can hope. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Mary J. Blige gets a nomination or D. Reese for, you know, I a screenplay so. or something like um, that. I think it's going to have a longer life. Than, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that the, the guy who played Ron Sell, Jason Mitchell. From he, straight out of Compton. Is he? Yeah. He needs to get a nomination Yeah, he was well. fantastic. He, yeah. I think he was my favourite. The his way he used is, his face and his lips in those scenes where he was unsure of himself, just watching his lips gestures. Mm was incredible. So hopefully they do get some sort of recognition. Yeah. But it does seem strange to tell listeners to go onto Netflix and look up Mudbound. By the way, when I – I don't know, you haven't – did you watch it on Netflix? Yeah, Because it, it's, yeah. it's not trending. It's not promoted. It's not no. new on Netflix. If you, but if you search for it, it's up there with along with Munich and Mudbloods. <laughs> so it is out there, but yeah, it's yeah. just not being – No, I've seen some moment. commentary about this. I did have to search for it. And even when I watched – I think I watched – the opening scene and then I had to go out and I came back and it wasn't still wasn't on my front page in my like return watching for Eloise I still had to go and so I don't know whether that is I mean I've heard discussions before about Netflix's interface and what they do and how difficult it is for a film to get on their front page. It's so, so difficult. Well, you'd think $12.5 million um, investment would make you Well, <laughs> you'd hope so, but maybe that's just nothing for them. Maybe, yeah. Um, in which case, why aren't you finding more Australian cinema? Please hurry up, Netflix. Yeah. To end on this a positive note, hopefully, I mean, you should all go and watch this on Netflix, definitely, but Dee Reese uh, has been announced that she's going to direct an adaptation of Joan Didion's The Last Thing He Wanted. Okay. Um, I'll just be Anders. Oh, my God! <laughs> yes, thank you. We we were missing missing you, Anders. But that's just amazing, you know, these two incredible figures yes. um, together mm. um, to put something to our screens, something more. So anyway. Yep, load the Oscar cannon for that one. Yeah, hanging out for it. Excellent. Realism is the practice of accepting a situation as it is. What you're saying is what you see is what you get. But what you see is not what I get. They call me lucky. President Roosevelt escaped. How does a hundred-year-old tortoise escape? I hope he turns up soon, for Howard's sake. I got this anxiety attack. I fell. Lucky fell down. Let's not make a production out of it. No sign of concussion. Lungs are great, even though you smoke. You get much exercise. I walk around all the time. I do five yoga exercises every day. Nice outfit there, cowboy. 
and I'm scared to death. I started thinking there's nothing out there. It's all black. The Void. John Carroll Lynch's debut feature film is Lucky. It tells the story of the irascible nonagenarian Lucky, who we learn a lot about via a series of encounters with fellow locals of an unnamed western town. If there's already something you know about this film, it's likely to be that Lucky is played by cinematic legend Harry Dean Stanton, who died after he completed the production. Carol Lynch makes it quite difficult to separate the character he plays from the actor. We're introduced to Lucky as he wakes up one morning, does some yoga, has the first of many cigarettes that day, and walks outside into his small town home. He does a crossword and has a coffee at his favourite diner, buys one day's worth of groceries, and is a regular at a bar called Lane's. Via conversations with friends, a doctor, a lawyer, and, this being a film in which Harry Dean Stanton stars, music, we learn all we need to know about Lucky. Eloise, did Lucky make you feel blessed? Uh, uh, yeah, I just, I like that you said he goes to the grocery store and buys one day worth of groceries because all he buys is a carton of milk, which as we see is the only thing he consumes at home apart from cigarettes, I think. So that's a bit hilarious. I really enjoyed this film. I loved, I, I mean, I think you're right. He, it is very difficult to separate the character of Lucky from Harriet in Stanton, particularly because it's about them, you know, ostensibly it's about Lucky kind of realising that he's a little bit afraid of death um, and being afraid to to leave the world and afraid to change his behaviour as well. I just really love the beginning. I mean, this has uh, links to Harriet in Stanton's life but also links to the history of the Western film. Mm. Um, Even though it's not really a Western it's set in the West. Yeah, there were echoes of Paris, Texas, some shots of him looking into a, a storefront window in a small Western town. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. Um, and and I mean, it kind of, you know, in its setup, obviously, um, and in some of its characters and in some of its discussions, it recalls older Westerns. But it's not really a Western. It's just, uh, you know, lucky as he walks through the town um, on multiple days, I suppose. Yeah, the town really does look like a film set. <laughs> Maybe it so, is. Oh, well, um, yeah, so many of those, those places just looked <laughs> like they were, had been abandoned for a long time. Yeah, yeah, they did. Or they were hollow. Did. But I love the opening montage of, of Lucky going about and doing his, his things in the morning. Is accompanied by an instrumental version of Red River Valley, mm. um, which obviously is a really, really key piece of music. That's in the song he's played in Twin Peaks, isn't it? Yeah, it and that's is. what Same I was song. thinking. Yeah, I yeah. was like, how incredible that he he kind of sung it in Twin Peaks and then he's playing it on the harmonica throughout this yeah, film. Right. And it's credited to him in the credits. Red River Valley is performed by Harriet in Stanton. And I just, that was so beautiful and actually made me get a bit teary mm. um, thinking about it. And I don't know whether, I mean, obviously you have John Carroll Lynch um, and then David Lynch and the, they possibly talked about using Red River Valley yeah, across yeah. the two projects. Um, because <laughs> Maybe it's just gone out of copyright. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because David Lynch is in this yes. film as well with mm. a uh, terrific tortoise named President Roosevelt. So in, he's really kooky, but yeah. In fact, here is a scene in which David Lynch's Howard, Ron Livingston's lawyer Bobby and Lucky, discuss the disappearance of Howard's tortoise, President Roosevelt. He's gone, Howard. And you're all alone. We come in alone and we go out alone. That's awfully bleak. It's beautiful. Alone comes from two words, all one. It's in the dictionary. I miss him. It'll be okay, Howie. The tortoise is an amazing creature, Lucky. They're as noble as a king and as kind-hearted as a grandmother. I miss my friend, his company. I miss his personality. He's not missing ours, he's just not here. He's there, wherever the fuck that is. And if he's not there, then he's nowhere. 
So even though, as you heard in that scene, David Lynch, you know, is being, again, almost like himself, you can very easily imagine David Lynch talking about the importance of a tortoise and shouting about how it's not a turtle Mm -hmm. and needing the specificity. And that is kind of really needed, those scenes, I think, with him, because they bring some sort of levity to it, even though there's a very jaunty harmonica that we heard in the opening trailer. The film moves at the perfect pace, I think, and that isn't really, really fast and jaunty. And Tortoise pace? Tortoise pace, I'd say, yeah, exactly. There's pretty much nobody in this film under 40, I don't think, and that's a really interesting thing. And the way the camera... So for those three people in the diner that morning, and I'm like, are they just scene, tourists? Like, yeah. why, are they sti- why are they here? This is clearly, like, a, an old and dying town. Yeah, so there's a gay yeah. couple and a girl and who a girl. at first think is... I think the girlfriend of one of the boys, but... Well, maybe they're... Who knows? Anyway, well, whoever they are, but yeah. Lucky has a... <laughs> can't be bothered with them. Well, and they're sitting in his seat. Well, they're sitting <laughs> in his seat, and he's, his expression was perfect. It was kind of like, it could be homophobic, could just be, oh, I don't care, or, yeah. oh, my God, what's happening with the world, or just do what you need to do, I don't care. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It was so terrific. There were so, just a few things in there that were brilliant and reminded me of my own grandparents, like that scene where he's kind of put out of his everyday um, habits and that scene where he's watching a game show on the TV and then the ads come on and he says, oh, they always yell at you because the volume's so loud and he turns it off. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've been in the same room with my grandparents where they <laughs> yell at the television in that way. I mean, I do agree with you that David Lynch brings a certain levity to this film, but I think it has it, essentially, even without him. There's this really interesting... Lucky has a practice of going to the diner and doing his crossword, and he always seems to reluctantly accept the help of people around him. But then the answer to one of the crossword clues is realism. And he he has this phone at home... And he makes like four or five phone calls throughout the film and you never get a sense that there's anyone on the other end of the line. And I find that really interesting. Is it just a comfort for him? Was there someone that he perhaps used to call who is no longer there or does he just do it because it's part of his process of of accepting reality? Or is it another throwback to Paris, Texas? Yeah, that too. But it's really, I think, really interesting to consider that there's this thread throughout the film where he talks about realism and he is, gets quite aggressive when he tries to define realism to people. But he says realism is a thing. And I love that this is a repeated motif because the film is just an exercise in surrealism, I would say, rather than realism. I mean, as you say, maybe the whole town looks like a film set like it's not actually lived in, that it's deserted. I mean, there's that like motif with the turtle at the beginning and the end of the film. There's the phone call. Um, there's, there's the, a, you know, kind of Lucky's really strange process of going through the day. And there's that moment of the dream that he has. And of course, dream does not always equal surrealist, but there is that thread there. And that's what I find really, really interesting about this film is that it's like a slice of Lucky's life, but at the same time, I think there's something more to it. Yeah, yeah. I think the the fact that it has a very clear horizon as well. Like we never leave the town. You know, everything is seems to be there. It seems to be almost this like gateway to a, another life or something in which every you seem to know everybody. You can walk everywhere. You don't need to doesn't need, doesn't need to bother with driving. There's barely even any cars or vehicles. I think in the film, it's just basically this series of interactions and encounters. But everything is kind of perfectly there. I mean, I would love to grow old in a town like that. 
mm. it'd be great. And also the fact that you know he chain smokes to no effect, no ill effect. Oh yeah, that was a really <laughs> funny scene as well, this, and the way the doctor yeah, spoke this, to him. This is what's just diffi- really absurd. Mm. Yeah, and that's what's kind of difficult about this film because if you go, what is it about? It's kind of like, well, it's meditation on death, but it's really not. In a way, <laughs> it's kind of like a celebration, and it's also just beautifully illustrated little snippets of his life. So when Tom Skerritt's Fred Sparks sits down next to him and they talk about being in the war together, mm. suddenly you get this whole you know, new insight into his life and as well as the fact that Harry Dean Stanton himself, the photo of whom as a soldier mm-hmm. in World War II is used as a prop in his house. So you keep getting all these extra insights and it's really hard to see, think, oh, this is not, this is somebody called Lucky who we don't know, but you bring so much. I mean, I'm assuming people here will have seen him in Alien and various other films. That you, you end up bringing a lot of what you know to it, like you know about Western, so you're seeing Western mm. stuff in there. And it's pretty unusual for a film this small and humble with such a tiny budget and modest ambitions to be able to be so strong, I think, and so so precise. Why, do you, why do you say that? Well, the fact that it's the directorial debut, the writers have never written anything for film before. They seem to have gotten struck um, Harry Dean at the perfect time in his life to be able to do this role, which he, you know, mm. it feels like he was born to do. Like his whole life was leading up to be able to pull off an amazing final turn in front of the camera. When we look at it, when it's coming out, you're like, oh, okay, so this is a modest film. It hasn't got a big promotional budget. It's kind of just yeah. yeah. You know, the reason most it's only people- screening at Nova and a few small cinemas around Australia. Yeah, um, I think also because it kind of coincided with with Harry Dean returning for Twin Peaks, the return, the Harry Dean Stanton Festival that was happening in America earlier this year, which was uh, focused on Lucky. Right. It just made the thing seem a much more grassroots, sort of you know, like small, modest film. But but actually it's got much more to say than you might think at first, or some people might think at first. Yeah, no, I think you're right. There's also those strange scenes inside the bar. Mm. Beth Grant owns this bar and they just have these weird like – existential conversations that go around in circles and you know that everyone involved in them is really frustrated but at the end they just laugh together and are happy yeah it's so strange yeah but it's also honest if you've been for 10 20 years going to the same bar with the same people they start becoming extremely serial conversations yeah yeah yeah. and i love that i mean maybe that's what this film is about you know it's it's about how strange life becomes when you've been repeating the same day um Mm, year after year What's the name of the song over the end credits, Andy? You can answer me that. There are two, but I think you mean The Man in the Moonshine by Foster Timms. I didn't write it down when I was watching the credits, but it contains the line, a perfect Manhattan for Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, And... That made me cry. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of awesome. It's just so nice. And again, you know, allows us to confuse the character of Lucky and the person of Harry Dean Stanton, mm. which is brilliant. Yeah. Um, even though he drank Bloody Maria's. Bloody Maria's, yes. As they were called. I did make the mistake of writing that Bloody Mary. Uh, but no, no. We're, we're not in that part of the world. We're not. We're in the part of the world where uh, Juan, Juan Wayne. Wasn't that yes, funny? Juan Wayne. <laughs> um, so the grocery store is run by a woman and her son, John Juan, sorry, is having a 10th birthday. And he says, Juan, that's, that's Spanish for John, right? Like Juan Wayne. Anyway, it's very <laughs> funny. It's this very nice little moment between them. Yeah, so I would definitely recommend seeing this film. I also don't think it's a tragedy if you miss it at the cinema and you catch it later on because it, I mean, it is it's shot in the American West, so you do mm. get some beautiful vistas. I'd quite like to see it in the cinema, to be honest, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there are we don't get a whole lot of chances to see the American West up on the big screen. So yeah. maybe take this chance. It's very beautifully shot. The colours are quite nice. So, mm. you know, you could do it. But, yeah, maybe you're not missing all that much if you don't. Yeah. And some of the um, flora becomes quite key mm. in certain That's parts true. of the film. 
One for the ditch and one for the itch. Oh, Danny Boyd be fine. And a perfect Manhattan for Harry Dean Stanton, the man in the moonshine. Yes, strike up the band for that old repo man, the man in the moonshine. From Paris to Texas, Kentucky to the Marquis, the man in the moonshine. The man in the moonshine. And now to the Cultural Capital Film Diary. The German Film Festival is taking over South Bank's backlog studios until November 25th. Highlights include a restoration of the long lost Fritz Lang film Destiny, the biopic of the filmmaker Fritz Lang and the Jürgen Prucknow starring spy comedy Scout of Peace, as well as myth favourite Axelotl Overkill. I just love saying that name. <laughs> Find out more at germancinemamelbourne.com. The Japanese Film Festival runs from November 23 until December 3rd at Acme and Hoyt's Melbourne Central. Opening with the action comedy Moomon, The Land of Stealth, the JFF is showcasing new releases such as Naoko Ogigami's Close Knit, A Double Life, and Life and Death on the Shore, along with a mix of 60s gangster classics from Seijan Suzuki, including Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill. Find out more at JapaneseFilmFestival.com. Over at Acme, Jean-Pierre Melville, The Outsider, is continuing. Highlights of some of Melville's most notable examples of ethics in the world of crime, crime in the world of Paris, and Paris in the eyes of a film noir obsessive. It runs until December 5th, and highlights include the heist classic Le Cercle Rouge, the jaded cop chases notorious gang of jewel thieves like Une Flic, and his most personal work, the highly acclaimed Army of Shadows. Also at Acme and running until December 5th is Rowan Spong's documentary All the Way Through Evening about East Village concert pianist Mimi Stern-Wolf, who's staging a concert in memory of Eric Benson, one of her many friends who died from AIDS-related illnesses. I highly recommend seeing that. It's beautiful. As is Rowan Spong, I understand. He is. Yeah. Finally at the Astor, Superman 2 and 3 are screening back-to-back on November 22nd, and a special screening on the 24th of 2001 A Space Odyssey is probably worth catching if you haven't seen it before. Finally on November 20, a double bill of later period Terence Malick, with Song to Song and To the Wonder is happening on November 30th. Is there anything happening at Cinematheque at the moment? We're about to wrap up for the year, so not much to report. Just finishing our Raoul Walsh season with two of his early silent films, uh, Regeneration and Thief of Baghdad. Oh, nice. Then we have One Night, a tribute to the films of um, Sue Maslin and Daryl Delora. Uh, and then a two-week season focusing on some of the work of uh, Straubrier, the filmmaking couple. Hmm. Um, so that should be a nice way to end the year. Cool. Well, congrats on another year at Cinematheque. It's always nice to do. <laughs> cool. And we're going to close uh, today's episode with a look at what's on a movie at the moment. I reviewed the short film Waves 98, which is a 2015 Lebanese film by Ili Degur that combines photography and several styles of animation to tell the story of Omar, who's a disillusioned teenager living in Beirut. Omar is exhausted by living in the anxiety of a war zone and dreams of getting out. 
And the combination of live action and animation can often be quite hit and miss, but in Waves 98 it really, really works because we're always tied to how Omar needs hope and no matter how impossible it might seem. And so this idea of the impossible is used in a really, really interesting way. Um, Waves 98 won the 2015 Palm d'Or for Best Short Film and it's pretty easy to see why. It runs on Mubi until December 7 and I highly recommend it. Ello, what did you manage to catch? Great. Well, I watched this classic Mario Bava's Hatchet for the Honeymoon. So this is a film about John Harrington, played by Stephen Forsyth, who has a bit of a thing for murdering women in bridal gowns with not a hatchet, although that does make a striking title, <laughs> but with a meat cleaver. This is a pretty wild horror movie that draws on influences from gothic imagery and tropes, Freudian stories, and the history of perverted subconscious fetishes. Made with brilliant colours, as you would expect from a blood-drenched barber giallo, and this is pretty much just a great wacky mixture of beautiful, terrifying, and loads of fun. Um, the Italian title is Il Rosso Segno della Fiola, or the red sign of madness is the translation. That sounds beautiful. It's a great, great title as well, but I think you could give either or of the titles and it could um, entice people to see this film. So it's still got uh, 28 days to watch, I think, on Mubi, and I highly recommend it. Great. Thank you very much. Mubi is a video streaming subscription service that gives you a new film to watch every day, which you have a month, one month to watch. As a listener to Cultural Capital, you can sign up for a free month by, of streaming by going to movie.com slash cultural capital and clicking on Watch Now. Thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 37 of Cultural Capital. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be incredibly grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. And you can find me at Andy Ricky. You can find me at Eloise Laura Ross. And we look forward to Anders first being back next week. Yes. Or next uh, fortnight. Next fortnight sorry. we'll be coming to you... From Bendigo. Bendigo. Yes, where we're going to see the Edith Head exhibition and we'll be talking about films that um, Edith Head clothes have been in as well as the latest releases. My favourite topic. <laughs> Thank you very much.